0: I invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. As you know, the month of January, we always focus on the theme, why we exist, and oftentimes we go through our core values of gospel, community, and mission. These are, these words represent, have a lot of weight around here of the gospel being the truth, the body of truth that we have received of how we've been redeemed by the finished work of Jesus on the cross, and Pastor Jesse on that first week expounded on the gospel um, to remind us of this message that we proclaim. And Pastor Israel of Iglesia Vertical, Vertical Church, preached on, on, on mission, he, on the mission of God, how we've been invited to be his witnesses in our Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and up to the far reaches of the earth. This is our mission. We exist for God's glory to make the gospel known to remote parts of the world wherever he would lead. But the other value that we have been looking at started last week is the idea of community. Speak about our community, church community, the fellowship of believers. And What does it look like for us to be the church, last week we looked at a text to help us understand the, this a unity that we have. Where it come from? And today we want to just double down on that a little bit. We want to look again, because I think that that is an area that is so necessary for us to be united when the world is all divided, when the world is in disunity, where every sphere in this world is tends to fall apart because of the sinfulness of man and the competitive survival of the fittest type scenarios in this world. The church is the space in this world, the tangible space where a display of unity must be at the very you know, center. You know, what, It's what marks us, the gospel of Christ that has transformed us and the unity that that affords us so that then we could do all the things that God has called us to do. So, we proclaim the gospel in word and in deed. And indeed, um, it's how we live amongst one another. So, in this Ephesians chapter 4, I want us to look at the first six verses, six verses of chapter 4. And you read along in your copy of God's word. I'll read out loud. This is the word of the Lord for us today. And it, is says, it says this Ephesians 4. who is over all, and through all, and in all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word now, and I pray that as it goes forth, as we attempt to unpack these few verses, I pray that it would go out powerfully. Lord, that these truths would resonate in our hearts, that we would wrestle with them, that we would embrace them, be challenged by them, and be reminded of the sweet grace that we have received. Oh, you have loved us. and You've proven that in your son. Help us to respond rightly now. And may the, the end result be a, a great desire for unity among us. In Jesus' name, amen. One, once I was in a leaders' meeting and, and before I was a pastor here at Providence Road serving at another church, and we had a meeting for all the teachers who were teaching the discipleship courses for that semester. And as we gathered to be instructed, encouraged on how to do this well, the person who was leading said something like this. At this church, we're not interested in theology. At this church, we're not not interested in theology because theology is something to be dealt with in the seminaries. At this church, we wanna be about the Bible in very practical ways, how then people will be able to grow in their faith, serve the Lord, and serve one another. In fact, we're so against theology that that's for the seminaries, that we want, to, we want you to know that what we're doing here is what people need, is what Christians need to grow to maturity. And you could just imagine how I <laughs> must have felt in that moment, just about to fall off my chair I couldn't believe what was saying, what was being said, and yet I think that that is pretty common. I think that sadly, among many evangelical circles, among many churches, uh, we, we're living in a, in a generation that rejects the idea that to grow in faith and service to the Lord and, and to serve and love one another requires deep thinking about God and deep wrestling with the truths of God. Many would say, hey, we just need to, we just need to simply focus on the practical, relevant things for people's lives. Because that's ultimately what people are looking for. And that's what church needs to be about, practical life lessons. We need coaches, we need those who would tell us the four, five, six things just tell me what to do, and I'm going to do it because we need to help people navigate this life and have success in this life. Oh, Pastor, we we need regular we are regular folks who don't need to worry about those deep theological conversations. Leave that to the professionals. Because I'm gonna get confused. And that's or, or we start to arguing about things and, and this will bring division among us. Who wants to hear about words like justification and sanctification and substitutionary atonement and propitiation? Who cares about biblical theology and how the Old Testament relates to the new? Who wants to talk about predestination and the sovereignty of God and the doctrines of grace? Pastor, that just divides people. This is the mentality in much of the evangelical world. Churches are built with this pragmatism where we are just trying to bring things to the level um, where it's relevant or or where people can somehow, their attention can be captured. And churches are full to the brim with with people like this. And and maybe you're sitting here and you're like, "Well, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, sometimes when you preach or one of the other pastors preach, I'm like, zoned out. You're talking about all these things, I don't even know what you're talking about. But when you bring that illustration, you caught me. You captured my attention. And I get it that there's challenges in preaching in ways that are understandable and, 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 and preaching in ways that are engaging. I get, I get the art of preaching. I get it, I understand. But I want us to know this morning that a Christianity where believers are not diving deep, wrestling with the truths of God. It's foreign to the Bible, and it's foreign to Christianity. The Apostle Paul never entertained the idea of a light theological church for the sake of winning the masses. He never had a strategy, let me just give them what they want to hear But what I think they could understand, as a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy 4, he speaks against it. It's the exact opposite for Paul. Paul, in essence, what he does to the churches, no matter how young the church was, how big, how small, all of them were fairly fairly young church plants, wherever he wrote these letters, Paul gave the church what the Lord had given to him the 13 letters that he wrote were inspired by by the Lord, by God. He knew that what he received from the Lord is exactly what these churches needed to hear. He didn't say, okay, I got the body of information from the Lord. I got the inspiration. Now, let me choose. Let me pick and see what they'll be able to chew on and what they won't. No, and, and even as we look at this letter to the Ephesians, we discover that Paul is incredibly theological. As you know, when we were in this book studying a while back ago, the first three chapters are just bombshells of truths about God and the gospel and about Christ. Extremely rich in its theology, deep in its doctrine. So deep that he ends up referring to the gospel as the mystery of Christ. The mystery that was hidden from ages in God. And he knew that he was made steward of this body of truth, steward of the gospel, and that as a steward of the gospel, he needed to deliver that to God's people, even the bunch of simpletons in the room who were just newbies in the faith. In, the, in fact, as you get to the end of chapter three, before you get to chapter four, he speaks of after he gives this rich, deep body of truth, he expresses his desires for them when he says that they would comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Or oh, it could be argued that no other writer in the New Testament was deeper in his theology as the Apostle Paul was. You've heard me say this before. If the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are you know, telling us the Gospel, the ministry of Jesus, it is, it is Paul and his writings and his epistles that explain to us what this Gospel means. In the book of Romans, the book of Ephesians, the book of Galatians deep truths that, that help us understand the grace of God, the purposes of God. So Paul is committed to a deep, rich theology that it is not just for him to keep for himself, it is for the church, it is for God's people. So we established that. No one is deeper than Paul. I mean, we spend our entire lives, the church, all of church history is still wrestling with Paul's letters. And yet, Paul being deep in his theology, Paul is incredibly practical in his Christianity. Because in chapters four, five, and six, after he's g- given all these amazing truths, these deep truths about the gospel, four, five, and six, he begins to give all the imperatives. Here's then how you should live. This is what it means to live in holiness. This is what it means to relate to one another. This is what it means to relate to unbelievers, to relate to government. This is how we should handle ourselves in marriage, in parenting, at work, how to make spiritual war against spiritual forces that are out for our demise. Four, five, and six of Ephesians are incredibly practical. He's extremely practical and relevant, but as is very True of Paul, whenever he writes, he never gives the imperatives without first grounding them in the indicatives. These imperatives, these things for us to do, are deeply rooted in response to the body of truth, the deep theological truths about God, who he is, what he has done in Christ Jesus. And this is the pattern of all his letters. He did this in Romans, in the book of Romans, how last week we saw the first 11 chapters, deep theological truths, yet yet chapter 12 begins, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. He gets into these imperatives, how then are we to live? This is so because Paul wants his readers to grasp these truths so that then they would know how to live. That's true for us, folks. We need to wrestle with the deep truths of the scriptures. We need to have our nose in the scriptures on our own, at home, with our families, and together with brothers and sisters so that we would know how to live for the Lord, how to respond rightly. We can't know how or the why of how to live as believers if we don't have a theological foundation for it. If we don't have a theological foundation for the things that we do as Christians, eventually it erodes, how we're seeing so many, reconstructing their faith, abandoning the faith, living how they want to live, ignorantly of what God has asked them of them, so we got to know. And as we look at this passage that we have written, Paul The first thing he does after he gives his deep theological body of truth about the gospel, he goes into the imperatives, and the first thing that he's concerned about is our unity. The first thing that he's concerned about is how we relate to one another, how brothers and sisters in Christ. And he understands that this is important because it doesn't make sense for us to have unity because we're sinners. But he wants to make sure that this unity that he's about to explain that they would understand where it comes from, where it flows from. It's not anything that we put together, it's what God has done among us, in us, for his glory. So the idea of unity is present here. And as we're wrapping up why we exist, as we're wrapping up this month, as we have our family meeting tonight, that a display of unity will be among us, but exclusively because of what God has done among us and the body of truth the deep theological truths that we've embraced and that guide and serve as a foundation for these actions and these acts and how we relate to one another. So main idea, if you are taking note, write this down, write this down. Unity among God's people flows from a deep theology that understands who God is and what God has done. Unity among God's people, unity among us, among the church, or unity at Providence Road Church will flow from a deep theology that understands who God is and what God has done. So as we look at this text, I want us to see what Paul is doing here. Although Paul is focused in these first three verses on these imperatives, what he's telling us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, of the calling, that we should live with humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing one another, in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace. That's what he wants them to know, but he reminds them once again as he says that, he brackets that on on the tail end with verses four, five, and six, that they would know that this that he just told them, it's flowing from an amazing truth about God and what he has done and who he is. Almost as if he's getting chapters 1, 2, and 3, encapsulating them all into two verses. In case you forgot, do these things as you live with one another. Have unity. But in case you forgot all this, let me encapsulate it by, by verses 4, 5, and 6. So that you understand and not forget where this flows from. In other words, Paul here is throwing a bomb once again, even in, in verses four, five, and six, as he's establishing for them how they are to relate to one another. So I have three ideas here for us. And it all has to do with oneness. Because for us to have unity, for us to be one, it comes, it flows from a oneness about God that flows to us as we then live tangibly in this world together. Number one, we'll see in this text that our our unity flows from the oneness of God. Our unity flows from the oneness of God. And I wanna first unpack verses four, five, and six to then go back to one, two, and and three and see the imperatives. Notice how Paul, he grounds our unity in the profound doctrine of God. He says in verse six, he says for we, he he speaks of the one God, verse six, one God. And one God who is the father of all and who is over all and through all and in all. Oh, he speaks of God as one. And that has always been the case for God's people. Ever since the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 45.5, I am the Lord and there's no other beside me, there is no God. It's a declaration that our unity, he says, flows from a God, from a God who is one, who is Exclusive. And yet there's this great mystery about this one God that is, it is mysterious in the Old Testament, but more explicit in the New, that this God, this one God, is three persons, what we understand to be the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I want to see how in verses four, five, and six, he, 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 is, he is grounding the imperatives of one, two, and three on the oneness of God, the Trinity itself, and how God is one in himself in perfect unity. So he says there in verse six, one God, and he mentions this one God as being the Father of all. The Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. In other words, the sovereign one, the one who has determined all things, the one who is over all things. And we know from the very beginning of this letter that Paul is speaking explicitly in terms of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as he speaks about the amazing truths of the gospel. So in chapter 1, verse 2, he begins, if I could just remind us, God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 3 of chapter 1, blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and He, the Father, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And He he speaks about the function of this God who is the Father, how He chose us, predestined us, forgave us, verse 8, lavished His grace upon us, He gave us His Spirit, He gives us the good works for us to walk in, in chapter 2, until we see with our own eyes the inheritance that we have received from the father oh this one god paul is saying this unity that we must have is flowing from a one god who is father but then he also says in verse five we just go backwards a little bit one lord now we understand in the writings of paul how he writes when he speaks of one lord he's speaking of the son he is speaking of christ Because again, even in chapter one, if he he refers to God the Father as Father, he speaks to God the Son as Lord. Verse two of chapter one, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15 of chapter one, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, again and again and again. It speaks of Christ being the Lord. So here we have, as a foundation to this unity that we must have, he says hey, don't forget we have one Lord, we have one God who is Father, who is Lord, God the Father, God the Son. The Son, the Lord is part of this one God. He is the one God. And we know that from the evidence of the New Testament, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this Lord, who is the second person of the Trinity, is the one who, in, in Philippians chapter 2, is the one who's being highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. And if you get to the end of your Bible in Revelations, we find that written on his thigh as the one who is coming, he, he is the king of kings and Lord of lords. Well, Paul is saying in these latter verses, five and six, listen, there is one God who is father of all, who is over and in all, and there's one Lord, Jesus the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and God in Jesus, the Lord, he blessed us, called us, redeemed us, and it's all been in him and through him. Because of him, we're part of the kingdom. Because of him, we're part of God's family. Because of him, we're stones in the temple of God with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Do you see that? That it's because of this purpose of God the Father, God the Son, that in their oneness, that's foundational for the unity that we must have among ourselves. He also speaks of one spirit in verse four. And one spirit, the spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, that seals us, that guarantees our inheritance, that reveals to us the wisdom of God, that allows us to believe. The one who's become our counselor, our helper, the one who brings conviction to us. And to have received the spirit is to have received God himself. When you trusted in Jesus Christ, when you were redeemed and saved from your sin, you were brought into the whole idea of being hidden in Christ, covered with the righteousness of Christ. It means that you have been brought into this relationship between god father son and holy spirit a relationship that is perfect unity perfect harmony all on the same page and you've been invited into that relationship and paul's saying this relationship of this one god that is so unique and otherworldly is the very basis for our unity it's amazing to see how our triune God has harmoniously worked out our salvation. Sometimes we pit God against him himself. You know, God the Father created and then and then Jesus is the one who wants to save people and he wants to save humanity and he comes because the Father sent him and then he just dies and then Jesus doesn't know who he's gonna save. So now it all depends on us to sort of decide and you know, follow him or not, and then the Holy Spirit is not, is not really waiting on Jesus. He's waiting on God the Father. to tell him. No, no, listen, there is, from eternity past, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit knew exactly those who were his, knew exactly who he was gonna save, knew exactly who his people were, and he accomplished this beautiful salvation. There was total agreement. Richard Sibbs, an old Puritan in the bruised reed, it's a book that he wrote, which I recommend for anyone to read. It's a small book. It's a little bit old English, but you can find the more contemporary version. The Bruised Read. Here's what Richard Sibbs says about the Trinity and the work of salvation. He says, see here for our comfort, a sweet agreement of all three persons. The Father gives commission to Christ. The Spirit furnishes and sanctifies to it. And Christ himself executes the office of a mediator. Our redemption is found upon the joint agreement of, of all three persons of the Trinity. There's unity among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our salvation, and all of us who have been saved by grace, by the effective call of the Father, by the perfect sacrifice of the Son, and the perfect indwelling of the Spirit of God have been brought into this relationship, and this relationship that we will spend the rest of our lives Wrapping our minds around is foundational for us understanding what it means to have unity among one another. Do you see that? Paul wants us to see that. Because we've been seated, as Paul says, in the heavenly places. We have, we're there in Christ, covered in Christ. May we reflect that in the imperatives that Paul gives. So our flow, our unity flows from the oneness of God. But secondly, write this down, our unity flows from the one gospel message. Any attempt for unity among us cannot be achieved by any other means other than the gospel. If our unity is based on our activities as a church, we don't have true unity. And it's fragile. If our unity is based on what we have in common, and we have affinity, where you sort of say, okay, we're united because we understand each other, because we're the same age, because we have kids of the same season of life, or because we're fun, or because we're boring, or because we're stoic, or because we're happy. None of that is true unity. None of that brings true unity. Non-believers could do that. You get a bunch of moms, stay at home moms with three year olds. You put an ad on Facebook and you might have 30 moms show up who get along and have play dates and have fun and laugh. The world could do that. We're talking about a unity that's different, a unity that flows from the oneness of God Himself, a unity that flows as a representative of the gospel. Oh no, the the unity that Paul's talking about is only possible through the gospel, the one message that saves, that changes everything for us. And so in in verses four and five, he speaks of, he says of the gospel, he says it in three ways. Um, There is one faith, one hope, one baptism. Oftentimes Paul will interchange the word faith for gospel, like for example, in 1 Timothy 3, 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. But Paul is saying that there is one gospel, there is one message that has produced faith, that has given us hope, and it's the very basis of our spiritual baptism. The one God whose three persons has determined that by the means of this message proclaimed, this message that Paul is not ashamed of, He's not ashamed of the gospel because the power of God unto salvation. The one message that he he says he's so zealous about this one message, this one faith, this one hope, this one baptism, he's so zealous for it that he even says if anyone preaches a different gospel, a different message, be a man or be an angel, let him be accursed, and he doubles down by saying it twice. It's the message of the gospel that brings salvation, therefore unity. That's why he says in Romans 10 that the gospel must be heard by preachers who are sent. Why? Because faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And so the one message of the gospel that was given by the one God who sent his son is the one who came to live a perfect life, to die in the place of sinners, sinners that crucified him. He paid their debt, the justice of God was hanging over them and there he paid the debt, he was the propitiation, satisfied the wrath of God against sin and when he said it is finished, he was removed from the cross, put in a tomb, and three days later he rose from the dead. He conquers death and hell and sin and just on the merit of his righteousness and our faith in him, not our works, our faith in him, our eyes are opened, we are transformed in our hearts, and we become Christians. passed from dead in a trespassing sin to be made alive in Christ with new affections, new desires to live for God, live for Jesus, to make him known. And to be amongst God's people. Oh, this Jesus, you know, God invites sinners to believe in him by faith. And this is the one message that we proclaim. Because the only message that will save any sinner, as Paul would refer to himself as the chief of sinners, he considered himself the bottom of the barrel, the worst of the worst. Yet grace was extended to him. So he, he encapsulates this one message by saying there's one faith and there's one hope, one hope of glory as Peter talks about this living hope. And ultimately this one baptism, how we've been spiritually baptized into Christ, but how we've been also physically baptized in Christ as a tangible, visible symbol of the commitment, the unity that we have with one another. You see how serious it is for us to have unity among us that God decided to bring believers baptism, to get people baptized in water, in the presence of the congregation so that we would know who are those who've been called, redeemed, saved, who are now among us, who have the responsibility to maintain unity among us in the bonds of peace, in the spirit of the bonds of peace. And what Paul is saying is this. These theological truths are the basis for our unity. The oneness of God and the one message of God, the gospel. And thirdly, if you take taking note, our unity flows from the one body we belong to. Paul says in verse four, he says, there is one body. Paul is saying that unity is found in the only body or group of people. Just one group. Just one body, the church. There are not other bodies of Christ. There are not other bodies that afford us salvation, using the metaphor of the body. There's one body of Christ, also known as his bride, the church. We're all members of this one body. And what's interesting about this body and talk about unity flowing from us, what's interesting about this body of Christ, the church, is that it's not people who are, who in worldly terms should not be compatible. Because it says that these people are from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. These are a people who, what brings them together is the one God and the one message. A people who were bought with a price, the shed blood of Jesus. A people who is the only bride of Christ, the only church, the only covenant people. A people that God has created and that God has brought together. And the reason why in verse 3 Paul says that we need to be eager to maintain the unity in the spirit and the bonds of peace is interesting that he uses the word "maintain." Because, folks, here's the reality. We could only maintain it. We don't create it. We don't create the unity that we have. God creates that unity. God is the one who has put us here together. And then his spirit that lives in us and the imperatives that we find even in this text, the call for us is to maintain it. It is God who by his grace has brought us together. It is God who made us citizens of his kingdom, members of his family, stones in his temple. He's the one who has adopted us and given us an inheritance. And it's all this theology, all this body of truth, of the oneness of God, of the one message of the gospel, and the one body that we belong to, Paul says that these things, these three things, are the foundation for the imperatives he gives in one, two, and three. In verses one, two, and three. And we way to maintain unity among us. So here's how the one body that was saved by this one God, one message. This is how we are to behave with one another. Live with one another. Verse one. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called without humility and gentleness with patience bearing one another in love eager to maintain unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace how do we then live what does unity look like among us well we it starts by walking in a manner worthy of our calling what does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of our calling think about the unity of god And the one message and the one body, well, that means that in order to accomplish that, we need to live a life of humility, gentleness, and patience. In other words, our theology, our understanding of God and these truths that we have been given, define how we respond to one another. Define our actions. Define our intentionality. Define our one our one another's. Our theology rightly applied, produce in us by his grace these kinds of actions humility, gentleness, and patience. So what that means is that when we when there's division among us, when we're full of pride, when we are impatient or indifferent towards one another when we're absent, when we're not here, when we're not involved in small group life, or we're not faithful with our giving, when we're not completely involved in the life of the church. What we're saying is this, those deep theological truths about God are not very important to me right now. These are not the motivating factors for me to be involved and smell like sheep uh, Speak of us the church sheep, smell like sheep and be involved and be ready to worship and serve the lord and god 's people when we are absent when we don 't do when we act in certain ways when When we don't want people around us, we're saying God, although you have brought me into this oneness with you and have called me to put this on display with patience, humility, and gentleness, I want to do things how I want to do things and I want to live my life how I want to live my life and and therefore I'm going to live inconsistently with how you have called me to live. And of that, of that we must repent to live with humility, gentleness, and patience is to believe and be driven by the theology that compels us to respond in this way. Because the reality is that when we do, when we do have great unity, rooted in humility, gentleness, and patience, it is only because God is at work in us. It is only because it's driven by grace. When you finally understand that, man, I'm better than no one else, but I'm here to serve and to be served, to be discipled as I disciple others, that I need to be reminded that the unity that I have with other brothers and sisters is something to be worked on, is something to be pursued. Why? Because it flows from the theological body of truth that I have believed. In other words, true, truly theologically driven people are humble people because they've been blown away by those truths. So Paul says, bear one another in love. That our oneness is based in the gospel that that causes us, that has caused us, look what the gospel has done. It has caused us not to flock towards people like us, but rather to flock towards people redeemed like us. There's a distinction. Not to just flow and gravitate towards people that, hey, we like the same sports, we like the same hobbies, we like the same foods, oh, that's fine and dandy. But the church is different because what brings us together is nothing else and the redemption that we have earned, that we have received, not earned, received and how God has brought us together to be a family. Oh, it would be so easy to have the kind of church that I would like. It would be easy for you to join the church. If you found people that just did everything just like you, well, you would love that church. But how is that a beautiful display of the gospel? You know what we want in our small groups, in our our community groups? I know that we have temptations and spaces where we could have affinity groups like, oh, you know, we have mommy play dates and, you know, we have young adults that gather here, we have youth that gather here. But you know what makes the gospel most beautiful? A hot mess of a community group with older people, younger people, kids running around that no one can listen, a house trashed after a Wednesday night, and we still love each other, and we still pray for one another, we barely get those prayer requests down, you know, in that hot mess of relationships. The gospel is being made known and it's a display of the beauty of the gospel among us. I want to encourage you to do that all the more because it's the Lord who has brought us together with all these differences. So we've got to bear with people of different cultures, different habits, different traditions, different personalities, but it's okay because the Lord has brought us together. Yes, that means that That person that offended you, you need to pursue unity, maintain unity in the spirit and the bonds of peace with them. With that guy or girl that you were dating that broke up with you? Or you broke up with them, what are you going to do now? Leave the church and find another church and abandon the hope? No, you figure out a way. The grace of God says, hey, you know what? The Lord was not out for us to be together and married. Well, we have to maintain unity because we're part of the same church. That difficult child that you want to always complain about because their parents are just not disciplining them, and get that child. Away. You know what? You better stop it. And love that child, and love those parents, and even encourage them. The the one among us who's insecure, who's always, who's always defensive, who's always like, what well, you know, just that you want to just not okay. I'm gonna stand on the other side of the sanctuary. Just now, go to that person and love them where they're at. The prideful, who all they do is talk about themselves, and they have a mic drop for everything, and they have the answers to everything. Love them where they're at. Maintain unity with them. I want you to know that your inner circle, your your circle, your church family, in this place is not just your community group. Your unity and responsibility and covenant promises as a church is as strong and as significant for that buddy of yours in your community group and that other person that you don't even know their name yet who you've been seeing for a year who's a member of this church. What a task for us. Because here's the deal, we need God's grace. We have to swim in the deep theological body of truth that the Lord uses to convict us and to align us all the time because our unity is always under threat. Starting with ourselves. So we gotta to die to ourselves. And the enemy is always on the attack to disrupt, to devour, and the culture as well and entertainment as well, and money as well, and Miami as well, does everything to to bring this unity among us, and coronavirus, and racial disharmony, and economy, and politics. When the front lines and the very foundation of who we are. Our very identity is not primarily all of those things, primarily all of those things. Our primary identity is what happens in here, is Christ. If you're a member of this church, if you're a Christian, you need to see that more and more. I need to see that more and more. You need to see church family as true family. But sometimes that's not the way we see it. I just attend church, high-five a few people, and then hang out with my real lost physical family that doesn't know Jesus. Guess what? They need Jesus, and if they don't have Jesus, one day they will die, and you will no longer see them for eternity. But those who are redeemed like you, who have the Spirit of God and has been called with you to be the church, you're going to be with these bozos, I mean with these brothers and sisters, the rest (laughs) of your life, and into eternity. So why don't we make much of Jesus together in the here and now, and stop pretending that I belong primarily to some other groups first. Must be united. Why, why must there be unity among us? Because the foundation of it all is that our unity flows from one God who is three persons, who is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who gave us this one message, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, who then places into this one body, and we to swim in the deep waters of those riches and those truths so that as we forget who we are, we can remind each other with God's word and by his spirit in us of who we truly are. And even tonight as we gather in our Why We Exist members meeting, Man, there's a lot to celebrate. There's a lot of vision casting. There's a lot of dreaming. There's a lot of things we want to do. But if there's one thing that we must do is to have a greater resolve and a greater sense of unity, of family. I just want to encourage us that we are true family if we are in Christ and in this place. And and that has implications for your life. And if you're not all in, you need to be. Because if you say you're a member here, if you say that you are of this body of Christ, then the Lord is putting upon you the stewardship of that one message and the unity among us. We need you. And you need us. And we need to put on display with all of our differences the great unity that only God can do through the power of the gospel, his spirit in us. So let's be that biblical community, amen?